You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is chock full of information about dead bodies, complete with anatomical terms, as well as terms for groups of people that we don't use anymore. If that makes you uncomfortable, you might want to go back and play your favorite episode out of the archives, right after we introduce you to another great podcast. Please listen carefully. Salutations, and thank you for lending me your ears for a moment. This is Brisky from the Turn of Phrases podcast. Turn of Phrases is a show all about exploring the origins and history of idioms, metaphors, superstitions, old wives' tales, and more. New episodes come out every Monday, so come along with me as we turn some phrases. For more than a century, the taxidermy diorama, Arab Courier Attacked by Lions, a man on camelback fending off Barbary lions with a long dagger, has stood in Pittsburgh's Carnegie Museum of Natural History. Throughout all those years, the piece has kept a disturbing secret from hundreds of thousands of visitors' eyes. Created by French taxidermist Edouard Vareau in 1867 and acquired by industrialist Andrew Carnegie for the museum in 1899, Arab Courier Attacked by Lions was long known to contain real human teeth. As recently as last summer, however, staffers believed it contained no other human remains. During a restoration, a CT scan revealed that, like the lions and camel, the display's rider was constructed with natural materials. In this case, a human skull. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The Carnegie Museum says it's willing to return the skull, but there's no way to know for sure where it came from, even with modern DNA testing. So, in his anonymous way, the original owner of the skull is famous and he's been bestowed a certain kind of immortality. Death doesn't mean everything stops for you. There are lots of ways we can live on after shuffling off the mortal coil, the least of which being as part of the ecosystem into which we decompose. Cells of Henrietta Lacks live on today, even though the majority of her died in 1951. Henrietta was born in 1920, the ninth of ten children, great-great-granddaughter of a slave, and was herself a tobacco farmer whose family remained poor. The farthest she ever traveled from her Southern Virginia home was Baltimore, when she went to Johns Hopkins Hospital seeking treatment for aggressive cervical cancer at age 31. She would leave behind five young children when she succumbed. She had no obituary. Unbeknownst to Henrietta, doctors had taken cells from her cervix to grow more cancer cells for research. Needless to say, she wasn't compensated, despite the replicated cells being bought and sold hundreds of times over. Thousands of patents are based on these cells, producing millions of dollars in profits for the companies that hold them. While a cure for cancer remains elusive, the cell line named for her, HeLa, has been at the core of treatments for hemophilia, herpes, influenza, leukemia, and Parkinson's disease as well as a polio vaccine, the cancer drug tamoxifen, 
chemotherapy treatments, gene mapping, and improvements in in vitro fertilization. After the birth of her fifth child, a hard mass was found on Henrietta's cervix, and a small piece of the cancerous tissue was cut off and taken to the pathology lab for diagnosis. Unlike most cancer cells, which die within a few days, a cluster of Henrietta's cells not only survived, but thrived, doubling within 24 hours and never stopping. The pathologist later told others that the cells had been taken from a woman named Helen Lane, hence the name for the cell line being He La, the first two letters of each name. But the rapid reproduction of the HeLa cells continued, inexplicably becoming the only human cells to grow outside the body. Scientists used them to gain insights into viruses. Cosmetics companies, pharmaceutical firms, and the military did tests on them. And Scientific American published an article informing readers on how they could grow HeLa cells at home. HeLa is the most prolific and widely used human cell line in biology. The Lacks family found out about HeLa one night in 1973 when one of the Lacks' daughter-in-laws had dinner with a friend whose husband was a cancer researcher who recognized the Lacks' name. He told them he was working with cells from a woman named Henrietta Lacks and asked if she had died of cervical cancer. The daughter-in-law rushed home and told Lacks' son Lawrence, Part of your mother is alive. A lawyer representing the eldest son and two grandsons of Henrietta Lacks, whose immortal cells are now the subject of a best-selling book and an Oprah Winfrey-helmed TV movie, says that she plans to file a petition seeking guardianship of the cells. It's not about the money, Henrietta's grandson Ron said. My family has had no control of the family story, no control over Henrietta's body, no control of Henrietta's cells, which are still living and will make more tomorrow. Johns Hopkins University released a statement denying that it had profited from the cells, as it had never patented them. Further, they explained, the cells were taken from Lacks in 1951. There was no established protocol for informing patients or getting consent to use their tissue in research. The family received no royalties from the book or movie either, though Oprah did make a significant donation to the Henrietta Lacks House of Healing. Bodies and bits of bodies being used without the owner's permission are going to be the watchwords of today's episode. Another person whose body helped save lives, though no one asked if they were willing to volunteer, was one Glinder Michael. He was a vagrant who died from eating rat poison, either as a deliberate suicide or accidentally by eating poisoned food that had been left out for vermin. With his body, World War II British intelligence officers managed to pull off one of the most successful wartime deceptions ever achieved, with the randomly chosen and creepily perfect name, Operation Mincemeat. In April 1943, a decomposing corpse in a military uniform with a black valise chained to his wrist was discovered floating off the coast of Spain. Personal documents identified him as Major William Martin of Britain's Royal Marines. When Nazi intelligence learned of the drowned officer's briefcase, and of Britain's desperate attempt to recover it, they did all they could to gain access. Though Spain was officially neutral in the conflict, much of the military was pro-German, and the Nazis were able to find an officer in Madrid to help them. 
In addition to other personal effects and official-looking documents, they found a letter from military authorities in London to a senior British officer in Tunisia, indicating the Allied armies were preparing to cross the Mediterranean from their positions in North Africa to attack German-held Greece and Sardinia. This intelligence coup for the Nazi spy network prompted Hitler to transfer German troops from France to Greece ahead of what was believed to be a massive invasion. The only problem? It was all a hoax. The brainchild of British intelligence officers Charles Chunley and Ewan Montague. After creating an elaborate fake identity and backstory for William Martin, including, but not limited to, carrying Martin's personal papers in their wallets and wearing his clothes so they wouldn't look too new, Chumley and Montague got Charles Fraser Smith to design a false torpedo in which to transport the body. One of England's leading race car drivers transported the container to a Royal Navy submarine, which dropped it off the Spanish coast. Once the Spanish recovered the body, British authorities began their frantic attempt to recover the case, counting on the fact that their efforts would convince the Nazis of the document's validity. As a result of the false intelligence carried by William Martin, the Nazis were caught unawares when 160,000 Allied troops invaded Sicily on July 10, 1943. In addition to saving thousands of Allied soldiers' lives, Operation Mincemeat helped further the downfall of Italian leader Benito Mussolini and turn the tide of war toward the Allied victory in Europe. The body at the center of it all was buried in Spain under a marker bearing the names William Martin at the top and later Glinder Michael at the bottom. Bonus fact, another member of Operation Mincemeat was one Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond novels. Fellow intelligence officer Charles Fraser Smith was thought to be the model for the gadget guru Q. Glinder Michael has lots of company in the Body Going Walkabout Club. Some corpses cover a lot of ground through nefarious intentions, and some for innocuous reasons. After the assassination of Abraham Lincoln on April 14, 1865, his body went through an elaborate embalming process before embarking on a two-week, 1,600-mile train tour. An extensive schedule of public viewings allowed hundreds of thousands to mourn the fallen president in person. Lincoln did not travel alone. He was accompanied by the body of his son William, who died of typhoid fever three years earlier. Even after finally being interred at Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield, Illinois, Lincoln's body didn't rest in peace. Two years later, on election night fittingly enough, a band of counterfeiters attempted to exhume the corpse to hold it for ransom for the equivalent of $4 million and the release of a jailed associate. They managed to get into the tomb and remove the marble lid from the vault, but had only moved the coffin a few feet before a U.S. Secret Service member embedded in the group alerted local law enforcement. Lincoln's coffin traveled to a number of secret locations in the following years, with the coffin being opened periodically to confirm that Lincoln's body remained inside. Lincoln moved a total of 17 times before he and the body of his wife Mary were placed in their current accommodations in 1901. Bonus fact 2, President Lincoln created the Secret Service less than a year before he was assassinated. Their original mandate was to combat counterfeiting, 
though they would be tasked with the more familiar presidential security detail in 1901 after the assassination of President McKinley. Another beloved and younger-than-average president to see bits of his body moving about was John F. Kennedy. The assassination of JFK has been surrounded by controversy and conspiracy since the fateful day in November 1963. We know that the second bullet fired went through Kennedy's skull, at which point a fair amount of brain matter was ejected. Doctors removed the remaining part of JFK's brain during the autopsy. And this is where the mystery starts. Some witnesses who were supposedly at the hospital at the time state that JFK's wife Jackie was seen holding a part of her husband's brain, but it's not known what eventually happened to it. During the course of the autopsy, doctors removed the rest of the brain and put it in a metal container. The Secret Service moved the container to the White House. In 1965, the container was removed to the National Archives. But an inventory the following year revealed that JFK's brain was missing. Investigators interrogated more than 40 people, but the brain section was never recovered. If you ever read about JFK's autopsy, it's not at all surprising that tissues were lost. Neither of the men who performed the autopsy was a pathologist. They both assumed the other man knew what they were doing, and neither one questioned the other. The autopsy report had such staggering notes as suggesting that bullets had fallen back out of the body. That's not how that works. That's not how any of that works. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Brains of famous people go missing more often than you'd think. At one o'clock in the morning, on the 18th of April, 1955, theoretical physicist, peace campaigner, and undisputed genius Albert Einstein muttered a few words in German 
and quietly passed away. The pathologist who conducted the autopsy, Dr. Thomas Harvey, had gone further than simply identifying the cause of death, which was a burst aorta. He opened Einstein's cranium and removed his brain. He had some big professional hopes pinned on that brain, says Carolyn Abraham, who met Harvey while researching her book, Possessing Genius, The Bizarre Odyssey of Einstein's Brain. I think he had hoped to make a name for himself in medicine in a way that he had been unable to do. And then he came to work one morning and finds Albert Einstein on his autopsy table. Harvey was not a neurologist, but he promised to organize the country's top specialists to study the brain and to publish their findings soon. Years passed, however, and no scientific papers emerged. After a while, Einstein's brain was largely forgotten. In 1978, a reporter was dispatched by his editor to find the illustrious organ. The reporter tracked Harvey to Wichita, Kansas. When he pressed Harvey to see pictures of the brain, the doctor walked to a stack of cardboard boxes in the corner. The bottom box was labeled Costa Cider. Inside were large mason jars containing Einstein's brain. When the story came out, Harvey was approached for samples by, among others, the neuroanatomist Marion Diamond of the University of California, Berkeley. She would receive four sugar cube-sized pieces of brain in a Miracle Whip jar, but at least qualified scientists were finally able to study Einstein's brain. With the exception of an increased presence of cells called glial cells, no scientist has been able to find a significant difference between Einstein's brain and the average person's brain. In 2010, Harvey's heirs transferred the remains of Einstein's brain to the National Museum of Health and Medicine. More recently, slides of 46 small portions of Einstein's brain were acquired by the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. If you've never been, I highly recommend it, but don't go immediately before or after a meal. Leaves of Grass poet Walt Whitman's brain wasn't stolen after his autopsy, but it was dropped, jar and all, onto the floor and destroyed. Composer Joseph Haydn's whole head was stolen, for similar reasons to Einstein's. Two men with an interest in phrenology, a pseudoscience that believed a person's intellectual characteristics were defined by the size, shape, and proportions of their skull, bribed the gravediggers and stole the composer's head to study it. One of them kept the skull on a cushion covered with white silk and draped with black satin inside a black wooden cabinet that was modeled after a Roman sarcophagus and decorated with a golden lyre. When authorities searched the man's house, he hid the skull under a mattress and had his wife lay down on it and dissuade the police by pleading female troubles. The skull passed through half a dozen hands before finally being reunited with the body. Frederick Chopin's heart covered even more ground than Haydn's head. Before the Polish composer died in Paris in 1849, he made the peculiar request that his heart be sent back to his home country. His eldest sister complied with his wishes, taking the heart before the body could be buried and secreting it back to Poland in a jar of what was most likely cognac. She hid the jar under her cloak and was able to smuggle it to the Holy Cross Church in Warsaw, where it was buried beneath a small monument. Given Chopin's popularity, 
the monument quickly became a rallying point for proud nationalists. During World War II, the Nazis stole the heart and coincidentally outlawed playing his music. Thankfully, the heart was recovered after the war and reinterred in the church. It remained there peacefully until 2014, when church officials and doctors dug up the heart under cover of night to verify that it was still well-preserved and not drying out or decaying. They found the heart still to be in sound condition. Sometimes a part, arguably even more valuable to its owner, can be removed, taken, sold, and resold. I'm going to turn this over to Hannah and Allison from the hilarious true crime podcast Dumb and Busted to tell you the story of Napoleon Bonaparte and his missing body part. I'm Allison Copeland. I'm Hannah Ether. We're from Dumb and Busted. Let's talk about Napoleon's penis. <laughs> Let's just dive in. We're going to dive right in. Maybe this is old news to you, and maybe you've learned a bit about it, but you haven't really heard the whole story. Fear not, friends. We are here to give you the skinny. Yeah, give us the juicy details, all. All right. So Napoleon's penis, let's just call it MP from now on. (laughs) (laughs) It begins its solo journey after Napoleon dies in exile on the island of St. Helena in the Atlantic in 1821. Okay. A doctor does an autopsy and takes the opportunity to relieve Napoleon of his vital organs, possibly some bone, and his penis. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. From there, NP is smuggled to a priest who takes it back to Corsica. Whoa. So the priest passed along NP to his family after he was killed in some strange blood vendetta. And in 1916, the priest's family bids NP adieu. And NP went on to enjoy a new life with a British collector, a London bookseller who listed it in a catalog as, quote, a mummified tendon, (laughs) which I feel like is probably not something any man ever Mm -mm. aspires to no before you see it look i feel like i should tell you (laughs) don't make any assumptions or judgments here okay (laughs) at least you just could say like well it's been in a catalog (laughs) i'm picturing what the like a shriveled like pepperoni stick We'll get to that. (laughs) You see, Envy was never put in formaldehyde, so nature took its course, and those who saw it described it as, quote, a maltreated strip of buckskin shoelace, Mm. a piece of leather or a shriveled eel, or a bit like beef jerky. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) And in case you're wondering. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Again, what every man aspires to. Yes. Uh, in case you're wondering, the internal structures remained intact, but in its shriveled state, it measured in at a whopping one and a half inches. Napoleon complex is a real thing. <laughs> in 1927, NP was put on display in, in New York at the Museum of French Arts. The French government was offered the chance to purchase NP, but they turned it down, refusing to even acknowledge its existence. Hmm. No. We do not believe this, and we do not want it. This is grotesque. (laughs) Eventually, little buddy was auctioned off to Dr. John Latimer, a top American urologist who wanted to take it out of circulation so it would no longer be treated as a spectacle. Mm. I mean, as a urologist, you just... In some way, that has to feel like, are you making fun of my job? (laughs) Well, you know what? 
<laughs> Joke's on you. I'm buying it. <laughs> Dr. John Latimer kept NP in a briefcase and stored it under his bed at his home in New Jersey. Sounds lovely. I wonder how many penises are kept under briefcases in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> under beds and briefcases. Let's go on a discovery spree. <laughs> I bet there's more than we think. So there it remains to this day. Dr. Latimer is no longer around, but his family has taken NP into their hearts and home. I just picture... How thoughtful. <laughs> I can't... Such care. Uh-huh. I guess it has like a nice little cotton wool bed in the briefcase. <laughs> they get a mini Tempur-Pedic. <laughs> a sleep number bed. Uh, look, I just picture one of the kids bringing home a significant other for the first time, and one of the parents is like... Hey, Jason, so you ever seen a historical artifact before? And the kid is like, Dad, please don't bring it out. <laughs> Cheeks ablaze. And he's like, what? He obviously wants to see it. It's a once in a lifetime chance. You know what? I'm just going to go get it. <laughs> Classic dad. That scenario replays itself with every kid in the house. It's <laughs> so great. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for this segment of Napoleon's penis. We are from Dumb and Busted, a true crime podcast about stories of insane stupidity and exceptional genius. Join us weekly. You can find us anywhere that you get your podcasts, including Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever Whatever. Else. Whatever. Thanks, Allison and Hannah. Some bodies are preserved and peered at in part. Some are kept whole. If you thought the people behind the last few segments were bad, you're going to hate the Vareau brothers. We actually touched on their work at the top of the show. They were also responsible for the human skull in the Arab courier diorama. Jules Vareau, a French dealer in Naturalia, witnessed the burial of a Swana warrior in 1831 and returned at night to dig up the body and steal the skin, skull, and some of the bones. With metal wire, wooden boards, and wads of newspaper, Vareau prepared and preserved the stolen body. He then shipped the body to Paris, along with a batch of taxidermied animals. A review of the exhibit in which the Swana man was featured claimed he attracted more attention than any of the animals. More than half a century later, the Swana man appeared at the World Exhibition in Barcelona, Spain. He was now dressed in a raffia loincloth, holding a spear in one hand and a shield in the other. When alive, he stood four and a half feet or one and a half meters tall. By the 20th century, having been brought over to Banyoles, a small city at the foot of the Pyrenees Mountains, his origins had been largely forgotten. He was mistakenly labeled as a Bushman of the Kalahari. In the decades that followed, the link to his Swana origins faded even further and he became simply known as El Negro. At some point, Roman Catholic museum curators replaced the revealing loincloth with an orange skirt. His skin was given a layer of shoe polish to make him seem even more black than he had been. Standing in his display case, slightly bowed and with a piercing gaze, El Negro embodied the darkest aspects of Europe's colonial past. His presence confronted visitors with scientific racism the classification of people according to their supposed inferiority or superiority, on the basis of skull measurements and other false assumptions. 
As time went on, El Negro became more and more of an anachronism, and there was increasing acknowledgement of the fact that his body and grave had been violated. It was actually the 1992 Olympic Games in Barcelona that were used to persuade the authorities to remove the exhibit. The Lake of Bagnoles was the venue for the rowing competitions. Surely any athletes and spectators who visited the local museum would take offense at the sight of a stuffed human being. Assistant Secretary General of the UN, Kofi Annan, condemned the exhibit as repulsive and barbarically insensitive. But there was heavy resistance among the Catalan people who embraced El Negro as a national treasure. It was not until March 1997 that he was removed from public view. Three years later, he began his final journey home. Following long consultations with the Organization for African Unity, Spain agreed to repatriate the human remains to Botswana for a ceremonial reburying in African soil. The body was moved to Madrid and relieved of any non-human additions, such as glass eyes. His skin, however, crumbled when they handled it, and the decision was made to leave it in Spain. An examination of the body showed that the man lived to be about 27 years old and probably died of pneumonia. The coffin, destined for Botswana, contained only the skull and certain arm and leg bones. The remains of the Swana warrior lay in state in the capital of Gaborone, where an estimated 10,000 people walked past to pay their respects. The following day, he was committed to the earth in a fenced-off area in the Sula Fellow Park. We are prepared to forgive, said then Foreign Minister Mampati Marafi, but we must not forget the crimes of the past so that we don't repeat them. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with one last story, this one of a body's travels that were a form of karma and bringing positivity out of tragedy. One of the key figures of the atrocities of World War II concentration camps was Joseph Mengele, a doctor who conducted brutal experiments and had a particular fascination with dwarves and twins. For more than 30 years, his bones lay unclaimed inside a blue plastic bag in the Legal Medical Institute in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Dr. Daniel Munoz, who led the team that identified Mengele's remains in 1985, obtained permission to use them in his forensic medical courses. Today, his students are learning their trade, studying Mengele's bones, and connecting them to the life story of the man called the Angel of Death. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word squirt. Squirt.
Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.